take our text from verses 24 to 26 toward the end of the chapter. We hear the inspired, infallible word of God. And Moses answered and said, But behold, they will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice. For they will say, The Lord hath not appeared unto thee. And the Lord said unto him, What is that in thine hand? And he said, A rod. And he said, Cast it on the ground. And he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from before it. And the Lord said unto Moses, Put forth thine hand, and take it by the tail. And he put forth his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, hath appeared unto thee. And the Lord said furthermore unto him, Put now thine hand into thy bosom. And he put forth his hand into his bosom, and when he took it out, Behold, his hand was leprous as snow. And he said, Put thine hand into thy bosom again. And he put his hand into his bosom again, and plucked it out of his bosom, and behold, it was turned again as his other flesh. And it shall come to pass, if they will not believe thee, neither hearken to the voice of the first sign, that they will believe the voice of the latter sign. And it shall come to pass, if they will not believe also these two signs, neither hearken unto thy voice, that thou shalt take of the water of the river and pour it upon the dry land. And the water which thou takest out of the river shall become blood upon the dry land. And Moses said unto the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore, nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant. But I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. And the Lord said unto him, Who hath made man's mouth? Or who maketh the dumb, or deaf, or the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with thy mouth, and teach thee what thou shalt say. And he said, O my Lord, send, I pray thee, by the hand of him whom thou wilt send. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is not Aaron the Levite thy brother? I know that he can speak well. And also, behold, he cometh forth to meet thee. And when he seeth thee, he will be glad in his heart. And thou shalt speak unto him, and put words in his mouth. And I will be with thy mouth, and with his mouth, and will teach you what ye shall do. And he shall be thy spokesman unto the people. And he shall be, even he shall be to thee instead of a mouth, and thou shalt be to him instead of God. And thou shalt take this rod in thine hand, wherewith thou shalt do signs. And Moses went and returned to Jethro his father-in-law, and said unto him, Let me go, I pray thee, and return unto my brethren which are in Egypt, and see whether they be yet alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said unto Moses in Midian, Go, return into Egypt, for all the men are dead which sought thy life. And Moses took his wife and his sons and set them upon an ass, and he returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand. And the Lord said unto Moses, When thou goest to return into Egypt, 
See that thou do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in thy hand. But I will harden his heart, that he shall not let the people go. And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. And it came to pass, by the way, in the inn, that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at his feet and said, Surely a bloody husband art thou to me. So he let him go. Then she said, A bloody husband thou art because of the circumcision. And the Lord said to, Moses, said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. And he went and met him in the mount of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spake all the words which the Lord had spoken unto Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked upon their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. As I stated, we take our text from verses 24 to 26. And it came to pass, by the way, in the inn, that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at his feet and said, Surely a bloody husband art thou to me. So he let him go. Then she said, A bloody husband art thou. Thou art because of the circumcision. May God bless his word to our hearts. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, God had led his church into Egypt where the devil brought them into bondage. And the devil was seeking their destruction. Egypt is a picture of sin, a picture of death. And the devil thought that by oppressing and killing the people of God, he would be able to accomplish that which was his greatest desire. Jesus would not come. But even you children know, God is sovereign. God is controlling all things. And God was even controlling this difficult time period during which the Israelites found themselves under the cruel bondage of Pharaoh. Pharaoh killed the male babies, boys. He tasked the Israelites with tremendous physical labor. But through it all, what happened? They prospered. Instead of bringing about their destruction, God was causing them to grow. He was using them to try to grow his kingdom in Egypt, Pharaoh was. Using them to build his treasure cities, to establish all of his monuments, and at the same time trying to absorb the Israelites into the Egyptian culture. If only he could get them into the ways of the world, to embrace the gods of Egypt and the ways of sin, then he believed that he could have his way with them and he could undermine the purposes of God. But again and again in this history, what do we read? God is in the midst of her. God is in the midst of his church and he will preserve her and he will keep her. Israel is the people of God and that comes out in a beautiful way in the passage that we read here. In verse 22, even so remarkably that God says this, 
Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. Here are the heirs of Abraham and the promises of God of some 400 years previous. God had promised that he would preserve and keep covenant with this people and that also he would deliver them and bring them out of Egypt after some 400 years of bondage. And now that time period, that time of promise is being realized. Stephen talks about that in the beautiful testimony that he gave at the time of his martyrdom in Acts 7. The time of promise. And God had prepared Moses to be that mediator. And Moses now is the one whom God raises up to overcome the powers of darkness in order that God's people might be delivered. God will do so in a marvelous way. And God even gives a bit of an insight into what's going to happen here in verse 23. Behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. It's going to be a bloody work. God is going to overcome and he's going to deliver his people through judgment, through blood. But God will bring about that deliverance. And all of this is intended to point to the blood of the only one through whom there is deliverance. And that's Jesus Christ and the wonder of the cross. We have here in our text here in verses 24 to 26 a startling situation. I've been preaching a series through the book of Exodus and this is one of those situations that we read and we struggle to understand. Why? Why did God do this? Why would God so pursue Moses? What is this supposed to mean? How does this fit into the context of the calling that God gave to Moses? We have here in our text one of the most powerful passages to impress upon God's people the importance of the sacraments. Just how serious is it that the church be faithful with regard to the sacraments that God has given? How important is it that we present our children for baptism? Just how important is it that we take seriously the responsibilities that God give us as his covenant children? We look at this text in order to see that. And as God's children then, we don't take baptism, we don't take the Lord's Supper lightly. This passage sets before us the important place that it occupies in the life of God's covenant people. We look at Moses' life sought, noting, first of all, the deliverance, secondly, the picture, and finally, the fruit. Moses was chosen by God to be the one who would deliver Israel. God raised him up out of the tribe of Levi, and God ordained that he would be the one chosen by God now to bring about this deliverance. God gave Amram and Jochebed, it would seem, to know that and to understand a portion of that, as when he was born they identified him as a goodly child, not just referring to a physical complexion, but evidently understanding that God in his providence was to use this one in a particular way in Israel. Just how it would happen, just all of the ins and outs of it were not yet known. But then you recall how Moses was likely circumcised then on the eighth day. God saw to it that he was able to stay in his covenant home by a marvelous expression of providence again as Amram and Jochebed had set him in the river in that ark and then Pharaoh's daughter located him. Miriam was quick to offer the services of his own mother to nurse him and so Moses is brought up in his own covenant home. He's taught God. He's taught the glory of God and the majesty of Jehovah God and he was given then after that one of the best educations that could be given 
in Egypt, as he was taken then to the home of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's daughter saw to it that he was taught and instructed in all the ways of Egypt, likely taught in the ways of war, so that he understood and knew war, all manner of battle, taught with regard to what it meant to be a leader, all of the various aspects that one would teach a future leader Moses received. God in his providence, directing the whole course of his life for that purpose that God had ordained. After 40 years, you remember, Moses thought it was time now for him to accomplish that deliverance. And therefore, he, according to Hebrews 11 then, showed his faith. He showed his faith, first of all, in severing himself from the people of Egypt and casting his lot with the afflicted Israelites. He forsook Egypt by faith, and he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, casting his lot with the Israelites who were suffering. What a wonderful expression of faith and a marvelous work again. But Moses showed himself in that time period to be impatient. He tried to use his own arm of strength instead of relying on God and looking to God. And you remember how he killed the Egyptian, and then he ended up being rejected by the Hebrews, and then he ended up having to flee from Egypt because Pharaoh was seeking to kill him. The Israelites were not ready, but more importantly, God was not ready yet. Moses was not yet ready. The Egyptians were not yet ready, and the Israelites weren't. There was time that was required for God to bring all of those things to pass. God then brings them into contact with Jethro in Midian. Jethro, a descendant of Abraham, living in Midian as one who is identified as a godly priest. Moses takes up a work as a shepherd, leading and guiding the sheep of Jethro for some time. He marries Zipporah, one of the daughters of Jethro. Another name for Jethro that's given in the Bible here is Rule. So that Rule and Jethro are the same man. God then increasingly reveals himself to Moses through the burning bush. In the backside of the desert, Moses is brought into contact with the burning bush and reveals himself, God does, as the I am that I am. Moses is given the assurance, I'm with you. And God now calls Moses, you need to leave now this comfortable life in which you've spent time here as a shepherd, and you need to go back to Egypt, and you need to declare that I command Pharaoh to let my people go. Moses is to go in the confidence of that name. He is nothing. He has no strength. But he goes in the confidence of that name above every name. God's covenant-keeping name. Jehovah, the faithful one. God is a God of grace, a God of love, a God of faithfulness, a God who hears our cries and in his faithfulness preserves and keeps covenant with his children. And what a beautiful testimony. We too go forward only in the power of the name. And Moses now is to go forward in that strength and with that courage. What do we find Moses doing? The chapter opens with Moses saying, but behold, they will not believe me nor hearken to my voice. Moses constantly is balking now. God is saying, Moses, go. Here's the testimony I'm going to give you. And he gives them this beautiful, wondrous scene of the bush that is on fire and yet not being consumed. And God's point is, I'm in the midst of her. I will preserve and keep her. And now, Moses, you go. Go in the confidence that the I am that I am has sent you. But Moses falters. And so God gives him the signs that we read of here in the beginning of the chapter. First, 
take your rod, throw it on the ground, and it turns into a serpent. And then Moses just to grab it by the tail and pick it back up again, and it turns back into a rod. And what's the significance of that? God is saying, I have all power over the devil. The devil is represented in a serpent. And look, I am all powerful over the devil. I'm controlling and ruling what the devil is doing. So that don't be fearful of the devil. I am controlling the devil. And then secondly, leprosy. Put your hand inside of your coat. It's leprous. Puts it back in. It's clean. Again, what's that a picture of? Leprosy was a picture of sin. It seemed as though sin was controlling the Israelites. And it seemed as though they were in the bondage of a sin that could not be overcome. God says, no, I am God over sin. I'm God over the devil. I'm God over the powers of sin. I'm able to break that bondage. And then finally, he gives them the picture of water poured out, turning into blood. The Nile River, a picture of the gods of Egypt. And God now saying, I'm all powerful over the devil. I'm all powerful over the powers of sin and over the gods of Egypt. The gods of Egypt cannot stand before me. One would think then Moses would be encouraged now and go with confidence and joy. Moses still, O Lord, I'm not eloquent, neither heretofore nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant, verse 10. And so God gives to him now Aaron. He says, I'm going to give you Aaron then. You go with Aaron. And now you can speak with Aaron and through Aaron. And so now finally, God promising that assistance, Moses goes back to Jethro. We see something beautiful in this history, beloved. God is with his people in their affliction. But God is also with us, his children, in our weaknesses. The theme of the book of Exodus is the love of God for his people and God's care for them. And notice God's patience, God's tenderness with Moses. We read occasionally that God is filled with anger and God then expresses such with Moses, but God tenderly caring for Moses, giving Moses what he needs in the role that he's going to carry out, providing him with answers to his questions and to his fears and to his doubts, and every step of the way, directing Moses to the I am that I am. Moses, look away from yourself. Look to me. And beloved, that's what we need to hear. Look away from yourself. We get filled with concern, filled with doubts. How can we go forward? And God says, look to me. Look away from yourself. Die to self and live unto me. In the midst of the troubles and afflictions, we're directed to the Savior. And that's what God is doing here to Moses. Now Moses goes back to Jethro in verse 18 and says to him now, let me go, I pray thee, and return to my brethren which are in Egypt and see whether they be yet alive. It's striking that we don't have any indication that Moses tells Jethro anything about all the wonders that took place, about the bush that was on fire that wasn't burned, about all these wonders of God peering to him and giving him these various signs. Moses just gives Jethro this instruction, which is all that's necessary at this point. And we find Jethro also a wise man of God. We have record later that testifies of the wisdom of Jethro. Later on in Exodus 18, I believe, we have Jethro experiencing the circumstance and situation that was happening in Moses' life where he was so busy and there was so much demand of his time. 
and Jethro then advising him to set an order and a structure that would be necessary. But now we have Jethro now responding to Moses, who was working for him, who was caring for his flocks, go in peace. It seems as though that wasn't still enough. What do we have then in verse 19? God again has to come to Moses. We don't know what kind of time frame there was here, but perhaps Moses had the approval from Jethro, and he's still dragging his feet. And so now God comes again, go, return into Egypt. And this time he gives him this encouragement, for all the men are dead which sought thy life. And so finally now, Moses responds. He takes his wife and his sons, sets them on a donkey, and they begin to go back. Again, we ask, how much encouragement does Moses need? But we see God's mercy, God's grace in dealing with his struggling children. Moses is experiencing what it is to be a child of God in direct communication with Jehovah. God is constantly interacting with Moses. And this is something that hadn't happened for hundreds and hundreds of years. But now God has taken Moses to himself and God will communicate with him, and God will preserve him in that friendship. God gives us his word as our encouragement, and God directs us in that manner. But God then even gives him more encouragement in verses 21 and 20 to 23. Again, God comes, and God assures them of his sovereign control over all things. When thou goest to return into Egypt, see that thou do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in thine hand. But I will harden his heart, that he shall not let the people go. And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. As the sovereign Lord, the king of kings, God will rule all things. And he will bring about the deliverance of Israel, despite Pharaoh's hard heart. God also confirms there a wonder. Israel is my son. What a beautiful testimony. This people, this people who don't even see a need to be delivered, who are comfortable to remain in Egypt. These are mine. And God calls Moses now to act on behalf of Jehovah to care for those whom God loves. God provides a word of life to his saints as they face challenges, struggles, joys in life. And God brings his promises to bear on all the circumstances and situations of life. We see that happening concretely here with Moses. God is working a wonder. Moses now at 80 years of age must understand the calling that he has. And while at 40 he was energetic, eager to go, now at 80 God is working a meekness where Moses increasingly is resting on Jehovah, leaning on God. And he learns not to complain in the face of trials, but to trust in God. God's working the wonder of wonders by which he puts to death the old man and quickens the new. We see the wonder of God's grace here in sanctification. As God is working that wonder not only in Moses' life, but as God works that wonder also in the lives of his children, giving us to know and to believe that he is faithful, that he is gracious, that he is good, in all his works and ways. And Moses is to be to Aaron a God. Perhaps that struck you in verse 16. Moses is not just a younger brother. Moses is to reflect the power and the majesty of God to Aaron. What really God is saying is this. No more Moses. Moses, you now stand in my place and you represent me, Jehovah. 
And Moses, you must not promote yourself. Your calling now, especially before Aaron, is to promote the glory and the honor of Jehovah God. Promote the name above every name. Moses is being made stronger in the way of being made weaker. Denying self, he must decrease in order that God increase in him. God is leading Moses to die to himself. This is especially true in the words of our text. And this is the explanation for the text before us. And it came to pass by the way in the inn that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Now that's hard for us to understand. God just came to Moses and said, Moses, the men are dead which sought thy life. And then God turns around now and says, but I'm going to kill you. We would think, what? How much more serious that God is moved against him. Who cares about these other people? Men can be overcome, but who can flee God? Clearly the reason that is revealed here is that Moses had not circumcised one of his sons. We don't know whether this is an angel now that comes with this threat. We read the Lord met him and sought to kill him. We don't know if God himself is here We know we can't see God. Whatever the explanation here, we realize that as God met him, God now likely strikes Moses with some debilitating illness. He's paralyzed. Something happens to Moses now as God strikes him here. And God leaves him then, it would seem, helpless. God makes unmistakably clear his anger. Eventually, evidently what had happened was The oldest, Gershom, had been circumcised. And then Eliezer was born. We don't know how old Eliezer was at this point. He could have been just a matter of weeks old, could have been months old. But evidently, Eliezer was born now. And as a result, he had not yet been circumcised. Now why? What was going on? We're not given an insight into Moses' family or Moses' home. But most conclude that though Zipporah had been a descendant of Abraham, her family had not continued the practice of circumcision. Could it be then that the first was circumcised at the assistance of Moses, but then later on Zipporah resisted when Moses tried to do the same to Eliezer, the second son? And many conclude then that Moses gave in to her resistance. He wasn't going to make an issue of it. He would keep peace in the home. And he compromised on that point so that there would be peace in the marriage. Zipporah's comments regarding Moses being a bloody man seem to imply that. Now Moses' life is threatened. He's seemingly struck with some kind of sudden illness or some kind of situation. And Zipporah realizes this demand to circumcise, it is a true demand of Jehovah. And she realizes now the seriousness of it. And in that situation with Moses not able to do what needed to get done, she then takes the son, and she spills the blood and does the circumcision. And afterward, God lets Moses go, we read. So he let him go, verse 26. God evidently freed Moses then from whatever that was that he had been struck with. And now he's able to return to his wife. Now the use of a stone here is not out of ordinary. Stone knives were common during this time and were used in Egypt. Zipporah then, after doing so, 
makes the comments of verses 25 and 26. And we understand both of them to be really one and the same. Surely a bloody husband thou art, and then 26, a bloody husband thou art because of the circumcision. Now literally what she says here is, a bridegroom of blood. And then verse 26 explains why. A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcisions. And the word circumcision there is in plural. Literally referring then to the two, Gershom and Eliezer. Now what's going on here? Beloved, faithfulness to God is the issue. The one who is called to be faithful to the covenant must have the truth of the covenant living in his heart. And he must be willing to give the whole of his life in faithfulness to the God whom he serves. The sign of the covenant must be not just outward, but it must be that which lives in the heart of the child of God. And it must reveal that Moses and his family are hit up with God in friendship and covenant communion with the living God. If not, there's only death. And once Moses' sin is exposed, that sin must be put out of his life. Once sin is exposed in our lives, it must be put out. If not, again, there's only death. Moses, as he's going down to Egypt now, as he's representing God, must be faithful to God and to the covenant. Moses can't face Israel. He can't face Pharaoh in any other manner. He must be true to God with regard to his own life and his own walk and his own conduct. And what this passage impresses upon us is what we often think about in prayer, but perhaps we don't give the significance to it as we ought. That God is not merely concerned with sins of omission, He's also sins of commission. He's also concerned with sins of omission. Here was something that Moses had not done. Now, it's often understood that after this incident, Moses then sent his wife and sons back to Midian, or he returned with them. So if they came no further, they went back to Jethro, and they remained with Jethro now for the next time period. Moses now goes alone without his family. That's based on the fact that we read nothing more of her or the boys with, her, with him in Egypt. And later on in chapter 18, verse 2, when Jethro comes back down, we read then that Jethro comes with Moses' wife and with his sons. And we read there in verse 2 of that, chapter 18, verse 2, that Moses had sent her back. And so it seems Moses now sent her back, and then she now goes back with the boys and remains in Midian until later on, after everything is finished, after all the plagues are over with, and then Moses fills them in in chapter 18 with all the details of what had taken place regarding the plagues. Moses is on the foreground here, and Moses' faithfulness before God is that which is prominent. The way to Israel, the way to Pharaoh, is the way of death to self and life with God. And the only way out of bondage is the way of blood. Moses is directed here to the wonder of the Messiah. The Messiah who shed his blood for our salvation. And Moses, as a man of God, forsakes the world in order that he might be faithful to God in all things. The covenant of God is central. And God's covenant and the wonder of that covenant takes hold of a man, takes hold of a woman, and causes him or her to live unto God. What's most important in my life? Not peace within my home. 
What's most important in my life is my walk with God and faithfulness to my God. What's most important in my life is not friends. It's not trying to appease family. It's not trying to be accepted in the community. Walking with God is that which is on the foreground. One small neglect may frustrate the entire purpose of life. And there's no such thing we know as a small sin. Our sins must be confessed. We repent. We turn from them. And God calls us to faithfulness to him. And he who represents God before men must himself be blameless. How are you living, beloved, in covenant with your God? How am I? Do we know God as the one who is our friend, the one before whom we live, the one for whom we are willing to give our all and to sacrifice all that we have? Are we denying self in the pursuit of his will and walking humbly before him? God calls us to that faithfulness and God assures us of his grace, his mercy, and his forgiveness. When the threat was removed, God no longer sought his life. God let him go, according to verse 26. And Moses now had to face the challenges alone. So what do we see here? We know that Jesus is present in the whole of the scriptures. And we see here, beloved, the wonder of the gospel in Exodus chapter 4. Jesus is the Savior of Israel. Jesus is your and my Savior. Apart from Jesus Christ, we would be doomed. All would be lost. He is the one who came in order to save his people from their sins. And he chose you. He chose me before the foundations of the world. He chose us that he might deliver us from the bondage and horror of sin. That which was our desire to stay in sin, to give ourselves over to those lusts and treasures, pleasures, must be forsaken. And our calling now is to turn unto him, to die to self, and to live unto him. We're weak. We're sinful. We're inclined to make up all kinds of excuses to justify our bad behavior. We're inclined to be those who would compromise in order to keep peace in our marriages, in our homes. Jesus comes as the word of life. He comes as the one who is the rod of God, who overcame the devil, overcomes bondage to sin, and the one who shows himself to be God alone. He destroys all our enemies, and he's able to take us into covenant, fellowship, and communion with himself. Jesus Christ is the one whose name is above all names. And what did Jesus do for you, and what did he do for me? Jesus faced the wrath of God for you and for me. God sought your life because of your sin. And what did Jesus do? He stood in the way, and he took that death upon himself. So that Jesus is the real bloody husband. Jesus is the one who loved his bride so much that he was willing to give himself, his own blood, for the sake of his bride. Zipporah here wasn't understanding everything, it seems. She makes the accusation of Moses, not realizing the pictures here, not realizing Moses here is a type of Christ. He's representing the Messiah not seeing the wonder of wonders that's present. The firstborn of all is Jesus Christ, so that we might be found in him and know the wonder and the blessings of life everlasting. And so God today gives us baptism in the place of circumcision 
We don't need the bloody sign any longer. We praise God for the perfect sacrifice and the wonder by which we and our children are washed. We're cleansed from all our sin. And we're given to know the wonder of that communion, that covenant fellowship with God. But God even does a more astounding wonder here in this history. God works faith in his people so that they believe. We read of that in verse 31. And the people believed. God brings Moses and Aaron back together after many years of separation. And Moses now speaks to Aaron and he conveys to him all the things that God revealed to him. What joy, what thankfulness there had to have been in that union. Seeing each other now after all these years. They gather all the elders together of Israel. And they speak the words of God to the elders. Words of the gospel, words of hope. Directing them to the I am that I am. His faithfulness concerning his covenant. God remembers. God looks down on your affliction. He remembers with pity, with compassion. And he's going to bring about deliverance by his mighty hand. The greatest thing that the people of God needed was hope. In the midst of their affliction, they needed that silver lining, that light that was shining through. And beloved, that's your and my greatest need today. We need hope. In the face of all the struggles, all the challenges, all the difficulties of life, we need hope. And God works that lively hope in the hearts of those who have been born again by the wonder of his perfect work. God works in them the knowledge not only of their new birth, but also the joy of the resurrection and the hope of life everlasting. That hope is the power of the gospel that lifts us. It carries us through the trials, the struggles of life, and it gives us to keep our eye focused on God and on Jesus Christ, our eldest brother. It keeps our eye focused on our bloody husband, who stood in our place and took upon himself death when God sought us so that I will not die, but live and live to all eternity. This great hope God gives to his children. He gives us a savior. He works faith in our hearts so that we believe. This is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And God then gives us the grace by which we're able to go forward and press through the trials, the struggles of life, knowing all will be well. Because God remembers. The Israelites were just looking at the things they could see. And as they looked at Egypt, they were overwhelmed. They saw the power of the Egyptians. They saw the bondage that they were in. They saw the hard taskmasters that were standing before them. And it seemed as though everything was hopeless. The devil seemed all-powerful. It seemed as though sin was prevailing and the devil was having his way. The Israelites were about to be destroyed. It looked as though... Jesus would never come. We know the devil will be destroyed. We know that Jesus Christ has already crushed his head. We are found in Jesus Christ and being found in him, we have confidence in him. Sin is overcome by the blood of the lamb. God delivers us from the bondage of sin and we find our hope in our bloody bridegroom, a bridegroom who loved us unto death and who spilled his precious blood in order to preserve and to keep us now and to all eternity. Living in a world that's given over to sin, God calls us to be his covenant people, and God calls us to live in this world as his. Deny yourself, 
Live unto me. Live in the hope of that final victory, that wonder by which I will translate you to glory at the moment of death and give you to know the joy of the final resurrection when Jesus comes back again. How do we show that we understand? How do we show that we treasure? How are we thankful? We preach the power of the blood of the Lamb. We preach that as our salvation. But more powerfully, as we preach that gospel and as we sound it forth, we trust God to work a wonder of wonders. God works faith and worship. And that's what God did. The people believed and they bowed their heads and worshiped. We believe and we worship. We bow before him in humble submission. We acknowledge what great things he's done for us. And we take seriously then the sacraments. Again, this is the strongest passage in the Bible to teach us to take the sacraments of God seriously. Be baptized. See to it that your children are presented for baptism and are given the sign of the covenant. And for this reason, when a couple comes who've been given a child and they come to the consistory and they requested the consistory baptism, the consistory does not have any right to refuse. So long as they're members in good standing, the consistory must grant them that request before God. God commands it of us. And those who confess Christ and live godly lives must receive the sacrament if they've never received it before. And then they present their children as well to Christ. Believers and their seed. We belong to Christ. We belong to his covenant community. And we're separate from the world. And we show that then as those who receive the sacrament, casting our lot in with God, baptized into his family, and understanding then what that requires of us. What does it require? We live as those who are baptized. We show the cleanliness that it signifies. We're washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Don't give yourselves over then to the filth of the world. Turn away from porn. Reject the drinking, the drugs of the world. Don't give your eyes, your hands, your legs, your arms over to the pursuit of unrighteousness. You're washed. You're cleansed. And as those who know the wonder of the bridegroom's work on our behalf, we look to Jesus to keep us pure, to keep us faithful. We look to him for the strength that we need in order to walk humbly before his face. We don't live as though we don't know God. We don't live as though the devil is our father. God has taken us into his family. And God now has called us to show forth his praise in the midst of this world. We represent him here below. And so they bowed their heads and they worshiped. That's the wonderful fruit of our deliverance. We have a bloody bridegroom. And what's the response of our hearts? We bow and we worship. We show thankfulness. We show our appreciation. God has not forgotten me. God has not cast me off. I know how sinful, how undeserving I am. And yet God has embraced me in love. What a great encouragement for the Israelites in Egypt. God had not forgotten them. Over 400 years of bondage. The downtrodden, oppressed, crushed Israelites have this hope. Beloved, many talk about being thankful, but they never show that thankfulness by worship. We worship. But notice this too, a great encouragement here in this history. What had Moses said 
We read it in verse 1. Moses said, Behold, they will not believe me nor hearken unto my voice. Sometimes don't we act that way too? We think as a pastor, we think as elders, we think as parents, as teachers, they're not going to listen to us. What good does it do to even go talk to them? They're not going to respond. They're not going to hearken my voice. Look at what God was able to accomplish. Moses had all these concerns, all these struggles. God says, Moses, go. And finally, Moses goes, and God works faith and worship in the hearts of the Israelites. Beloved, astounding. Never underestimate what God is able to do. We struggle to understand. We struggle to see how God can use us. We struggle to see how our children or students or our classmates or perhaps a friend who's walking in rebellion would respond. God is faithful. God is able to heart, soften the hardened heart. And God is able to work wonders on behalf of his covenant. As those oppressed by sin, by guilt, who know the hope and the joy of the gospel, we cry out to Jehovah in our need. And God works hope. And what a beautiful thing that hope is. That hope lifts our heavy hearts. That hope burns through the darkness. That hope enables us to press on in the knowledge God is good. God is faithful. God will not forget. He is faithful to his promise. And that hope then stirs up within us that worship. We have a bloody husband in whom is our salvation. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, what great wonders thou hast performed for us, undeserving sinners. Strengthen us in our hope. Inspire us to faithfulness by thy word and cause that we might die to self and look to thee, knowing that our strength is found in thee alone. 